Hello, friends. Welcome to Wednesday Wake Up, a podcast hosted by Gregory Maloof, Buddhist Dharma teacher in the lineage of Ruth Dennison, mental health therapist, and mindfulness coach. Wednesday Wake Up explores the ancient teachings of Buddhism through the lens of Western psychology, neuroscience, and the modern human potential movement. Our commitment is for these teachings to educate, challenge, and inspire you to awaken to your deepest potential to live a truly fulfilling life of wisdom, joy, and compassion. Thank you for joining us. May these teachings serve you well. So I thought tonight we'll talk a little bit about Anicca, impermanent changing phenomenon. So much to say about this subject, but we'll just take a couple frameworks this evening. I learned a lot about this actually um, last year when we had our day long and we did our day long on impermanence, Anicca. It was quite the personal journey in putting together that day long. I just was able to really dive into the idea of impermanence in the Dharma. And there were just a lot of insights that stuck with me from that retreat. So I thought I'd come back and revisit just some, just some basic reminders about impermanence and change in the Dharma and why it's so important to keep this idea of change, as the Buddha would say, in the forefront of our minds, keeping mindfulness in mind, particularly of impermanence. And it's funny because Anicca is such a prominent topic in the Dharma. You can hardly talk about anything in Buddhism without it somehow being like two degrees of separation from impermanence in some way, shape, or form. And in spite of the fact that it's so prevalent in Buddhist teachings and in our direct experience in meditation, there is still a challenge. It's still such a challenge to be awake and aware to the nature of change and to watch with ardency, how our heart and mind react to the impermanent nature of human experience. It's just tough. It's a tough road, and I'll, I'll go into some reasons why that is in a minute, but it's just, it's challenging. Despite all of our practice with it, it still becomes a stumbling block for most of us dealing with Anicca. I was, um, whenever I think about Anicca, I remember this kind of strange blessing I had where I was working in a community mental health center, mostly working with, uh, with families. But at the time I was working with a lot of children who were suffering from traumatic brain injuries and, um, trauma of different sorts, uh, intellectual developmental delays. And one of the most common symptoms that we would see would be what we would call low distress tolerance which translated into real life just simply means that the kiddos, because of what had happened in experience and with their hearts and minds, that change, things that changed really were distressing for them. They had a really hard time adapting and managing and anticipating change. It caused grave suffering, huge amounts of suffering. And I, prior to having worked in that environment, I hadn't seen that before. I hadn't seen how challenging it can be for human beings to manage a Nietzsche and what can really happen if we don't have the ability to be awake and aware to how we're responding to change in our lives. And so that was such a huge Dharma insight that I had in working with these kiddos and the privilege to be able to watch 
what happens when we suffer and struggle with being able to manage our response to the fact of change in our life. There are a couple pretty standard ways that as meditators, we tend to come into contact with impermanence in the Dharma. The first one is like kind of really obvious, which is the trilogy or trinity of anicca, dukkha, and anatta. Most meditators who get into the Dharma really quick end up stumbling across the three characteristics of existence or also known as the three uh, perceptions, which is impermanence, suffering, and not-self. So oftentimes when we come to the Dharma, our first introduction to impermanence comes with, you know, a teacher or a meditation guide inviting us to look as we're meditating to notice the inconstancy, to notice the flux, the arising and passing away of the breath, the arising and passing away of emotions, the changing in our thoughts and the feelings in the body. As soon as we start meditating, we are invited to bring impermanence into awareness as a primary object. So that's where we we tend to start with change, with impermanence, with anicca. And then there's another part of it that sometimes takes a while for us to run into in our studies of the Dharma, but I think this one's really super important. And this comes through the Buddha's journey well, we usually call it the four sites, but it's the, the mythology of the Buddha's journey or the origin of the Buddha's journey. And most of you know this as uh, the mythology that when the Buddha was born, there's this prophecy that the Buddha is going to be a great king or the Buddha is going to be uh, a great spiritual leader. He's going to be enlightened or he's going to be a great uh, leader and great king. And his parents want him to be a great king, not a spiritual, a spiritual leader. I guess there's less clout in being a spiritual leader. It might be sort of like, you know, your, your kiddo, you know, wants to either be an art, a starving artist or a business person. And your parents are all, oh, you know, hell no, you're not going to be a painter. <laughs> you're going to, you're going to own a business of some sort. So uh, the king, of course, requires that the Buddha stay in the palace so he doesn't see any suffering. So he's not exposed to suffering because the fear is if he experiences the suffering of the world, he will renounce the world and he will be sent on this path to be a spiritual teacher. So as you know, you know, the Buddha does what the Buddha does. And instead of being confined to the palace, he goes out into the world with his charioteer, Chana, and the gods intervene and send down I guess you could call it signs, but they send down someone who is sick, someone who is aging, and someone who has died. And the Buddha sees these folks on his journey outside the palace, and the suffering is shocking to him. And the sight of the suffering, of course, begins his journey to awakening, where he is so overwhelmed by the fact there is this suffering that he decides to find a way out. And the fourth sight that the Buddha sees after he sees the corpse is a wandering mendicant, a spiritual practitioner. And that gives him the hope that he has another option in life, that he does not have to suffer, that he can choose to be a spiritual practitioner and find this way out of suffering. What we don't often realize when we listen to or we read this mythology is that even though aging, illness, and death are objects of contemplation in the Dharma, in the context of the motivation for the Buddha to start his journey, 
These three experiences represent different forms of anicca, forms of impermanence. They're actually faces of change. We get sick because of anicca. We pass away because of anicca. These things are representations of the fact that everything in life is constantly growing and changing and passing away. So the real impetus for the Buddha's spiritual journey is not just sickness, old age, and death. It's actually change. It's the fact of change and the suffering that it brings. That's the big impetus for the Buddha to seek something outside of materiality. And so when we look at the the Buddha's quest, what the Buddha actually asks is, is there something outside of the change that we see in the material world? Is there something beyond it that's unchanging? Which is why enlightenment is often described as unconditioned, unchanging. So when the Buddha is going off on his quest, not only is seeing the suffering related to impermanence part of that spark, his description of what he's seeking is in fact the opposite of impermanence. He is looking for the possibility that his heart can touch something that is unchanging. And part of the reason that the unchanging quality is so important is that the Buddha concludes that in a world that is constantly in flux, it's impossible to have true happiness because in order to get the happiness, the happiness would have to be stable. It would have to be permanent. Otherwise, we could have little flutterings of happiness, right? We can have momentary happiness, but we can't have long-term happiness in a world where everything is always giving way. Everything is always changing. So the Buddha's quest is, can I find a happiness that lies beyond anicca, that lies beyond impermanence, a permanent, lasting, long-term freedom from suffering. And we don't often frame the journey that way, but that's what's implied in the way that the mythology is set up. So what we see is that the Buddha wants to find something that's reliable. Another way of interpreting the term anicca is that it's, a, it's an absence of reliability. And I find this to be hugely helpful in my own practice, is that when we live in a world as if we had a choice, because we live in a world of impermanence. The world is unreliable. It's always shifting underneath our feet. And no matter how often we can get those moments of stability, inevitably change is coming, right? Anicca always, <laughs> Anicca always wins. And sometimes I like to think of it as like... Uh, like a casino, right? You can go to the casino and you might win a couple hands at blackjack or put a coin in a slot machine and win some money. But the longer you play, the house always wins, right? Anicca always wins. No matter the momentary happinesses that we get in our life, and there's plenty of them, of course, there's plenty of joy to be had. In the end, aging, illness, death, discontent, all of this dukkha is there waiting for us. And this is the impetus for the journey. This is what motivates the Buddha to practice, to quest after something that might be permanent, something that's unconditioned and beyond the world of Anicca. One other aspect of the term Anicca that might be important to remember is that not only does it signify the unreliability of the world, 
It also signifies the fact that everything that we experience is in motion. We live in motion. Everything in our body is in motion. The outer world is in motion. And there is nothing static that we can experience. And so this is where we get the idea of emptiness. That with mindfulness, turn towards our direct experience of life, we see clearly that there's no solidity down underneath, right? There's no solidness. There's no thingness underneath. It's just flow. It's just flux. And not only are our hearts and minds constantly in flux and our bodies constantly in flux, we live in an ecosystem that's also constantly in flux. So when we think of impermanence, we think of flow and change and process, and we also think of instability, lack of dependability. I like to say on occasion that no matter what, at some point in our lives, a Nietzsche, the unreliability of the world, will break our hearts. Eventually we experience heartbreak. A preference doesn't get met. A relationship ends. Someone passes away. We lose a job. We don't get something that we really, really want or have been striving for for a really long time. Eventually, no matter how good things are going, we're all going to run into that moment where our preferences just simply can't be met because something changes in a way that we dislike. And so holding that close to our hearts and minds, that's the beginning of the Buddha's journey, really settling in to this flow and flux of the way the earth moves, the way our heart moves, the way our mind moves. It always trips me out that the earth is moving, I think, I think they say like a thousand miles an hour or something. So even when we feel like we are at ease and at peace and still in the meditation, even a meditator in full equanimity is moving quite fast through space and time. So there's never really any stillness that we can experience, at least on this side of the Big Bang. So Anicca, impermanence, something we must contend with. I want to offer a couple ways of looking at this that might be helpful. When we bring our awareness in meditation to the impermanent phenomenon of the breath, we can watch the breath arise and pass away. And we can watch thoughts, as they say, like clouds, pass away. We can develop our equanimity. We can let go and not cling to these things as we're sitting. And there's a lot of, a lot of ways that that process in and of itself carries over into daily life. We find that we can let go easier when we practice just being awake and aware to the impermanent phenomenon that we see in meditation. We don't have to do much else. Like we do the practice of meditation and we simply find that in our life, we suddenly see, oh, there's a little bit more equanimity. I can see that things are changing. I don't have to grasp as much or cling to outcomes. And this is, you know, commonly reported for us as meditators. We experience this. But there's a deeper layer to this, which I think we often have to draw attention to in order to see, or at least to remind ourselves of. And that's the fact that human beings have preferences. We might not be aware of it moment to moment, but as we move through our day, our heart and mind is constantly desiring things to be a certain way. We have this preference for every moment. We want to feel dot, 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 whatever it might be. 
when we wake up in the, <laughs> I'll, I'll speak for myself. So I've noticed that when I wake up in the morning, I really prefer that the first sensation I have is not grogginess, right? That I wake up in the morning, like I have a preference that I love those moments when I wake up and I'm like kind of clear headed and ready to go. I don't like it so much when I wake up and I'm still tired. That's a preference, right? And so every moment our hearts and minds are preferring the world to be a certain way. We're kind of roll, well, we want to roll out this red carpet moment to moment that we can walk upon that's just kind of celebrating what we would like to happen. And we might not be aware of it without mindfulness. That, you know, human, human beings, let's face it, human beings love to get their way, right? We love to have things our way. And we love to, well, we love to be right about things. Um, we loved for our preferences to be prioritized. Another thing I, I caught myself the other day, I, uh, I pulled up to this mailbox place to, to get some mail. And um, as I was pulling up, I noticed there was a long line. And I realized in retrospect, I have a preference for there not to be a line when I pull up to go do something. Like, it's just a natural inclination. Like, when I pull up and I see the line, my heart doesn't open up into this spacious, you know, loving space where it's like, oh, look, there's a line. I have to wait. There's this subtle aversion of like, damn, where, why are all these people here? I want to be here to do something. But they're, like, taking up my spot. They're in my way. Like, I want there to not be a line. Now, I'm not part of the line. They're part of the line. I'm just there to get my needs met, right? So I don't include my, myself in the line. I'm just being inconvenienced because my preferences should come first. So when we think of a Nietzsche, we, it's really helpful to think of it in terms of things are always changing. We can't always get our way. And the mind is constantly looking to get its preferences met. And it's that constant clinging and grasping and wanting the world not to be imper not to be impermanent, but to be just how we want it to be. That's where the suffering occurs. I would invite you to reflect on this just for a moment. You can think of it in terms of something that happened in your past or maybe recently. Can you recall a time where you didn't get your preferences met? and it caused great distress. What comes to mind when you think, can you think of a time where you didn't get your needs met in a particular way and it caused distress? And then you might ask yourself, what was the cause of the distress? What exactly causes the discomfort? That's the place of meditation. You might also ask yourself, and this is really helpful, we all have pet peeves, right? We all have things that trigger us. In the future, what kind of thing do you know will happen that will cause distress in the future? What kind of situation do you know you'll be in that you don't like to be in that you know is going to cause distress? That's another way of meditating on impermanence is reminding ourselves of the way we react because we all have these pet peeves, right? Another one of mine, one thing I definitely don't like and I know will happen again in the future is being on hold for customer service. <laughs> There's something about calling to get some need met 
and having them say you're 30th in line and it's going to take an hour and a half or whatever the case may be, that preference not being met, for me, there's something agitating about that. And I know it's going to happen in the future. That is an object of meditation. Knowing how we're going to react to the fact that things change and our preferences may not get met in the way we want. So we can look to the past. The Buddha always asks us to, to meditate in two ways. Looking to the past actions to see where suffering has occurred. So we can ask ourselves, what am I going to do different next time? And looking toward the future and saying, okay, things are going to change. What am I going to do next time things do not go my way, right? When the world does not rise to meet my feet, what am I going to do in that situation? So you can look at it in the past. You can look at it in the future. These ways of looking at preferences is a really helpful way of meditating on a Nietzsche. I remember uh, years ago when I was studying, I hope I have this right, <laughs> when I was studying Ayakema's teachings, I do believe it was Ayakema who was being interviewed, and Ayakema was one of those rare teachers, I believe, who was kind of openly talking about stream entry. She was actually, I think, even a step beyond stream entry, and one of the things she described with the first stage of enlightenment was the fact that it no longer bothered her that her preferences couldn't be met. She still had the preferences, but the suffering that she used to experience when those preferences were not met, that had disappeared. And there was a great freedom. It wasn't like she would walk in the world and, and not still have the desire, but there wasn't any more suffering when the preferences. And I thought that was so powerful to hear that because I'm so preferential as a human being. <laughs> I know that I always want to have things to go in a particular way. So that's another way of looking at this is where is the suffering? Is it in the clinging? Is it in the aversion? Is it in the grasping, the expectation, the anticipation? We all have these pet peeves and these preferences and being awake and aware to them can be hugely helpful. Now, here's the, here's the paradox of Buddhism. I love Buddhism for so many reasons, and this is, this is one of the, the great things in the Dharma. The Buddha basically says, Anicca, impermanence, is a natural part of our experience. And we're asked to be awake and aware and accepting of the fact of change. And at the same time, the Buddha has an equally powerful request, which is change your actions right? Walk the Eightfold Path. Engage in skillful actions to transform yourself. So on the one hand, we're asked to accept change. On the other hand, we're asked to initiate change. We're asked to engage in change. Uh, practice loving kindness, right? Practice letting go. All of these skills and tools on the Eightfold Path require us to change these habits. So there's this kind of paradox where on the one hand, we're asked to accept and meditate upon and be okay with Anicca. And then on the other hand, we're simultaneously asked to engage in intentional actions to change how we show up in the world. And when we try to change our habits, we run into something really interesting, which is it's really hard to initiate change. No matter what the intention, if we have particular habits that have been ingrained, and most of the time, by the time we reach mindfulness, we have a whole slew of habits that we're trying to unravel. 
The challenge is that it's, it's hard to initiate and sustain change. It's difficult to establish a meditation practice, right? It's difficult to encourage the mind not to wander because it's used to wandering. We want to change that and we invite the mind to be present. Totally counterintuitive. So we've got these kind of push and pull moments where we're asked to be accepting and to cultivate equanimity and we're asked to change our habits and to include starting meditation, being more compassionate, practicing generosity, letting go. All of these heart-mind qualities that we're invited to cultivate are, of course, intentional actions. We have to create these new habits. So I wanted to just remind us and normalize why initiating change can be so difficult so that we don't struggle so much against it in our practice. And so I've got a few things here I think that can be helpful. It's certainly helpful for, for myself. Whenever we engage in the process of cultivating a new behavior, any kind of spiritual practice or spiritual behavior that we're trying to work on, we have to remember that when we motivate ourselves to practice Shame and fear and guilt tend not to be great motivators. One of the things that happens for meditators is we feel like, I need to be more compassionate. And then we feel bad because we think we're not very compassionate. Or I need to be more equanimous. And so we get down on ourselves for not being equanimous. And we use that energy of discontent to try to change the behavior, right? So oftentimes when human beings engage in change, their first step is like talking bad about themselves to themselves, right? Feeling bad, feeling guilty, shaming ourselves. And from that space, we try to build a new habit. So it's totally normative for human beings to do that. And I'm just going to throw in a little bit of science here. So there are hundreds now, hundreds of research studies that have shown that if you want to initiate a new habit and sustain it, the worst way you can do it is start with guilt and shame, right? Because habits that are built on guilt and shame rarely stick, rarely stick. So I want to invite you to start with self-love and self-compassion when we're building new habits of practice, whether it's equanimity or generosity or loving kindness or discernment, whatever you're working on in your practice, begin with acceptance and self-love and self-care because fear, guilt, and shame apparently don't motivate the heart very well. Another thing we tend to do, especially as meditators, when human beings engage in a new habit, we often do it in an all or nothing fashion. I don't know why this is, but studies show this consistently that when human beings start off to engage in a new activity, it's all or nothing. So if we only meditate a couple times a week, we get down on ourselves from not having done it five times or six times. Or if we meditate for 10 minutes, then we say, well, I should have meditated for 20 minutes. We have this really high aspiration that's an all or nothing situation. And what it creates is a constant sense of failure. We set the bar so high that when we start a new habit, we end up hitting our heads well, I guess that would be a low bar. We, we have the bar so high that we can't get over it. So 
this happens a lot in spiritual practice. When students sit down to meditate or learn a new tool or technique or just trying to get practice in, right? Get that daily mark, that daily practice in. We often have this all or nothing attitude. And it ends, ends up making us feeling like we're never gonna be successful in the practice. So when we're doing meditation, it's important to remember that the smallest amounts of mindfulness, the smallest changes in our life are hugely effective long-term. We don't have to get down on ourselves and shame ourselves and have all the self-deprecation if we're gonna make changes in our life. Studies show that small changes done consistently are more likely to lead to larger, more consistent changes than if we raise the bar really high and try to meditate for two hours a day, every day for, and then we fail and then we're like, we fall down and we feel bad and the whole cycle starts over. This goes a lot, a lot for like dieting, exercise, all these kinds of things, right? So it's something to remember. It really applies to spiritual practice because I know from my own experience that oftentimes I can forget after all these years that if I can just meditate for a few minutes, wonderful. Give myself some credit. It doesn't have to be this monstrous achievement to make mindfulness and compassion and joy become a part of our lives. We can take baby steps and it will stick longer if we do it that way. Something to remember. Two other things I wanted to mention. One of the things I really love again about the Dharma is that at the top of our wheel of dependent co-arising, the top of the wheel of suffering, right, is ignorance. Ignorance. The wonderful thing about the Dharma is that the Dharma celebrates ignorance. The Dharma celebrates the fact that as human beings, we don't know everything. We always have a blind spot. And the other thing that the Dharma celebrates is the fact that we're going to try something and we're not going to be able to do it successfully. We're going to have to try it again and again and again. The Dharma realizes that to change habits, right, and to show up in the world differently, it's a lot of practice. It's a lot of energy. It's a lot of discernment. And the Dharma celebrates the trial and error of personal growth and development. We're not expected to be awakened the moment we put our awareness on the breath. And oftentimes as meditators, we forget that it's going to take 20,000 times of inviting the mind to come back to present moment awareness before it finally says, oh, okay, yeah, sure, I'll do that, right? And just because the mind wanders away doesn't mean that we failed. That's just part of the practice of establishing a new habit. So one of the reasons folks give up or don't establish change in their lives is that we forget that what we call failure, right, or messing up, however you want to say it, is a part of growth and change. If you were just to like sit down and meditate and get enlightened in the next minute, there'd be no practice. It's called practice for a reason. And here's another example I like to give. You know how you're trying, you know when you train a dog, this is my experience with training a dog, you're trying to get a dog to sit and stay and you have treats. And in the beginning, you invite the dog to sit. And of course, the dog doesn't. It just comes after the treat, right? And you have to do this like over and over and over again. Now, we have to remember that each time the dog doesn't sit still and runs up to you and wants to play and lick you and do something else, 
that's part of the growth. That is part of the experience. It's not a failure. It's just the learning process. There's no failure in the process. That is the learning. Learning and growing includes messing up and falling down and missing your meditation and getting angry at somebody and getting averse. And, you know, part of the Dharma practice is clinging and craving and all of that, all of that stuff that we're trying to manage and get a hold of and transcend, all of that's part of the growth practice. It's all welcomed in the Dharma. So when we get into the Buddha's invitation to both cultivate and abandon habits, for the cultivation part, we got to go easy on ourselves. We have to remember that falling down is a part of the path. It's just the way it goes. The mind's going to wander. You know, I... One of the benefits, I think, of being a Dharma teacher and also one of the, the challenges is that I'll get in these situations where I'll get pissed off at something and I'm like, gosh, I can't believe I'm so pissed. I'm like, I'm a Dharma teacher. Like, how is it that I can't be equanimous to this stupid thing? And there's like this sense of like fa real failure. I'm like, oh my God, like, what am I doing? Like, I, you know, I'll get really angry at something or something really small will just completely light me up and I'm just like god like when am I going to be perfect already like when is this going when is this going to happen <laughs> I've been meditating long enough perfection should be at hand so just a reminder that one of the great things about anicca is that change is about growth right and growth means getting up and falling down and getting up and falling down that's a part of the impermanence that's a part of the change in order to change, we have to be willing to get stuck, right? We have to be willing to forget. And then we have to be willing to remember and then forget and remember. And that is the whole process of the awakening. Forgetting, remembering, forgetting, remembering, and loving ourselves all along the way, if we can, to the degree that it's possible. To the degree that it's possible. One last thing I'll say about change. It's easy, I often hear students, and I know I've done this to myself as well, oftentimes students will say, I should be dot, dot, dot. I should be practicing more loving kindness. I should be going on more retreats. I should be sitting more times a week. I should, I should, you know, and this is a human, this is a human problem, not a Dharma problem, obviously. The constant shooting on ourselves is just a human thing. But in the Dharma, in relationship to the Dharma, we learn the Dharma and there's these changes we want to make, these things we want to do, ways of being that we want to initiate. And we often approach it with this sense of, I should be doing this, I should be doing that. It can be very helpful in spiritual practice to really ask yourself, if you're working on something in your practice, really ask yourself, am I ready to really take this on? Am I doing it just because I read it in a book or because the teacher mentioned it in a Dharma talk? Or am I doing it because a friend of mine is working on jhana, therefore I have to be doing jhana? Or a friend of mine went on this, you know, retreat, therefore I want We really want to ask ourselves, am I ready for the change? Because oftentimes we're just not ready. We're not ready to abandon the habit or we're not ready to cultivate the new one. Maybe it's just not the right time in our life to make the change. Or maybe we don't have the, the right energy, right? Or the right motivation. There's something there is just not ready. And I wish someone would have encouraged me early on in my practice 
to ask myself as I'm moving through my practice, as I'm growing and developing in the Dharma, every so often just to sit back and say, am I ready for this? Am I ready for this practice? Am I ready for A or B or C? Because oftentimes the reason we're not successful at something is simply because it's not the right time, right? It's just not the right time to be engaging in it. It's not the right time for reconciliation with that relationship. It's not the right time to A, B, or C. And so it's one of those things for change. Change tends to stick when we're really excited and ready to do it. When we're really in a space where we have the support, the energy, the intention, and the love to be able to engage in whatever the practice may be or whatever the new habit is that is being cultivated. So just again, you can see the theme here is a lot of self-care. It's a lot of bringing mindfulness to the moment to ask ourselves, am I ready to initiate this type of change in my life? So bringing this all together, the paradox of practice is that part of our practice is to accept change, to accept that our preferences are not always going to be there. They're not always going to be met in a world that's so unreliable, that's always in flux, that cannot be controlled. That's one part of the practice. And the other part of the practice is we aspire to be loving, kind, compassionate, generous beings. And that takes work. That takes change, initiated change that comes from within. And when we aspire to do that, we are patient with ourselves. We allow ourselves to fall down. We make sure we're ready, that we have the support, the commitment, whatever it may be, a teacher, sangha, or it might just be that sometimes in our life, you know how it is, especially as adults, like there really are times in our life where taking on new tasks is really not the right thing for us to do. There's just times where it's just not like, maybe this isn't the year to increase my meditation every day. Maybe it's just not, maybe something else is a priority. So giving yourself the benefit of the doubt and really getting in touch with your heart when you do this kind of stuff can be very helpful. That's my story. That's my story with Anicca. Anicca is a huge topic. Huge topic. Thank you for listening, my friends. I appreciate your time and your commitment to your own change and your own well-being. Let's, uh, God, we're going to end right on time. See, this is where my shitting is like, oh, we should end on time. And we probably will. And that means I'm a good person. So let's fall back into meta for a few minutes. Thank you so much for being with us this evening. Let's wish the world well for a couple minutes before we break. Let's bring awareness back to body. It's been an hour and a half. Let me just check back in with this breathing body. How am I feeling in this moment? And we just notice. A physical body with its shape and form. Our thoughts and moods of this moment. Maybe we're fatigued, maybe energized. We just welcome this moment into awareness.
And as we move towards our loving-kindness practice, we might just fall back into a sense of gratitude for everyone in this room this evening. Sangha, community. Without community, there is no Dharma. What a blessing. And we might remind ourselves of the amazing privilege to be healthy enough and safe enough to be here this evening. Let's take a couple long, slow, deep breaths, relaxing fully into the body on the exhale. Let's offer a final wish tonight for the world. In this moment, if you could wish anything for all beings, and know that wish would come to pass, what would it be? With each breath, wish that for all beings. May you all be safe and well. Feel free to say goodbye to your lovely friends here if you would like to unmute yourselves on the way out. Thanks for joining us here at Wednesday Wake Up. We honor the traditional Buddhist practice of offering the teachings without charge. So this podcast will always be ad-free and will never be behind a paywall. This podcast is sustained exclusively by the generosity of listeners. If you've received value from this podcast and have found your life or practice enriched by listening to it, you can support Gregory as a teacher by going to our website, www.wednesdaywakeup.com, and click on Donate at the menu on the top. While you're here at the website, join our mailing list and follow Gregory on Instagram at Gregory Maloof Dharma. Thank you again for listening. May all beings be happy.